music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with me, Chris Hawkins. Blue Dot is finally back. And after an extraordinary return to Jodrell Bank this summer, we're excited to be able to share some of the many highlights of this year's Blue Dot 2022. Over coming months, you can enjoy full talks, panels and listening parties from Blue Dot, including headline speakers from our Mission Control Arena and intimate chats in our Notes Culture Tent. We took the Blue Dot podcast on stage at Blue Dot 2022, and this In Conversation was recorded live and features me, Chris Hawkins, in conversation with a certain ratio, discussing the past, present and future of one of Manchester's most iconic bands. Welcome to the Blue Dot podcast with one of the most important bands in Manchester's music history. They were one of the first bands signed to Tony Wilson's Factory Records and made a huge impact with their debut album, The Graveyard and the Ballroom. They've influenced bands from Talking Heads to the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Happy Mondays to LCD Sound System. Please now welcome to the note stage here at the Blue Dot Festival 2022, Martin Moscrop and Donald Johnson. A certain ratio. Uh, the first thing I have to ask, guys, uh, Jez, how is he? Uh, he's, he's recovering. He, um, he actually hurt himself at a gig, the last gig we did. No, the last gig we did was Latitude on Friday, but we played in Cambridge in March and um, he fell out of the van. Fortunately, the van was stationary. So he only fell from the seat to the floor. And the van was but, safe as well. But he, um, he's really badly hurt his, his, the bottom of his back. Coxix. So it's not a very easy injury to recover from. So a festival is a no-no. You can't walk about with injuries like that. So we've adapted to a five-piece without Jez for we're, these We're also thinking gigs. about using a hologram, but we couldn't get that together in time. So, <laughs> uh, Guys, I want to go right back to the start with you to, let's say, the mid-70s. And Martin, tell me about Manchester at that time. Bleak. <laughs> it was always raining. Uh, every building was black with um, soot from... Uh, chimneys because it was just before they changed the uh, the law about whether you could use coal or not. Was it that must have been about the mid seventies when they changed correct. all that? But um, I remember as a kid, my dad parking his car on old behind old Oldham Street, and it was my first time in Manchester because I'm from Lancaster originally, and I thought, Dad, watch this shithole you brought us to. Um, so yes, it was a very dismal place at the time. It's great, but it was bleak. <laughs> Who were the big bands back in the mid seventies? It would have been uh, Buzz Cox. I used to listen to Ludus quite a lot. They were pretty that, cool. That was the late seventies. That was uh, not, not mid to mid to Martin, middle, middle. Yeah, he has a yeah. I have to see what I have to deal with. <laughs> okay, so I'll start again. Uh, yeah, what Marty said. <laughs> Donald's Brothers Band was actually massive oh, yeah. in, actually, in yeah. the, right in the middle of the 70s. Yeah. Uh, sweet sensation. Anyone old enough to remember them? Sad Sweet Dreamer. One. Lena. One. 
<laughs> um, punk was just starting, so was that changing Manchester? Uh, maybe changing the attitude towards being able to do things. Um, it meant that young people had this kind of energy about being able to do things and not kind of caring, just, just going for it, really. Uh, I, I would. Say I wasn't really a punk, so... <laughs> yeah. you know, I joined I, with the movement and loved what, what was going on with it, but I never dressed it. I loved the attitude, but I wasn't a punk, so to you, speak. you did go to quite a lot of punk gigs. Yeah, so. but I you wasn't a punk. To, you used to go to the Oaks in Cholton. used to go to the Oaks, used to go to Rafters. Yeah. Yeah, all those gigs, seen Susie, mean, all those people. From the start of... Uh, when punk started, there was a place... Um, well, the Electric Circus was one of the early venues, but um, it just exploded. There was just so many gigs in Manchester and things going on, and the movement built up so quickly. I mean, obviously, because uh, the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks played very early in 76, in the, the whole scene just exploded from there. But it died a, a very quick death. Were you at the, the Free Trade Hall gig? No. Neither was I, no. <laughs> wow, two people that are, but, admit to not being but, there. But I nearly was because I knew uh, Slaughter and the Dogs and I knew Mick Rossi. And Mike did ask me and was telling me about this gig for ages and ages. And for some reason, I didn't go. So I was one of the 140,000 people that were there <laughs> that claimed to be there, but I always claimed I wasn't there. You weren't there. Uh, so at this time, um, a certain ratio was, was embryonic, I, I suppose. Uh, Martin, how did the band come together? The band formed in uh, 1978, and Pete and Simon were both school friends, and they just used to mess about in their bedroom together and I think they did one gig at Pips and Jez was at that gig at Pips and Jez went up to them afterwards and said oh I really enjoyed that so they said do you want to join so in those days people used to join bands even before they could play an instrument which was one of the great things about punk so Jez joined them and then they did another gig at Band on the Wall for the Musicians Collective and I was at that gig playing with a Stockport glam punk band called Alien Tint. And they were all dressed the same as me. And uh, Alien Tint used to wear makeup and everything, and I didn't. So I thought, I'm in the wrong band. <laughs> so after the gig, I went up to them. I said, oh, I really love your band. So they said, oh, uh, you've got a guitar amp, haven't you? So I said, yeah. So they said, do you want to join our band? <laughs> So in, the, in those days, you, you, if you had an instrument or an amplifier, you could join a band. It was as simple as that. Uh, who chose the name? Um, it's from a Brian Eno track called... Um, uh, it's off Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy called The True Wheel. And we can't remember who actually thought of it, but we used to love that album. That's probably the most played album at that time. See, punk punk was still going but if you were if you were into punk right at the beginning by 1978 you hated it because it had gone really mainstream so you started listening to people like Brian Eno and Kraftwerk and you know stuff that wasn't punk which is how the post-punk movement happens you know from all those influences. Um, when did Tony Wilson enter your life Don? Uh, when he asked me to join this group, 
he was a friend. He knew a friend of mine called Toby who was in Ludus, and he was asking around for a drummer of a certain type of <laughs> skill, a funky drummer, as they call it. Um, and Tony told, sorry, not Tony. Uh, my mate talked to Tony. Tony then, one day, um, straight after his TV show, came up, came up three flights of stairs, came to the flat and knocked on the door. And my wife, who was now my girlfriend, opened the door and went... <laughs> because he, we were just watching him on the TV half an hour ago. You know, and he's like, at the front door. Came in, did the spiel, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I went to their re- rehearsals, not having... Um, listened to a single note of what they were playing because I liked the idea of what Tony told me they were and that's how we came together. Martin, what do you remember about meeting Tony for the very first time? Um, I, I can't actually remember the first time I met him but it was the, the reason Tony met us was because Rob Gretton, who was Joy Division's manager at the time, saw us play at Band on the Wall, actually saw that first gig i did with ACR after the Alien Tint gig and went and said to Tony, you need to see this band called A Certain Ratio. So in those days, if you wanted to see a band, you put them on at your venue and Tony put us on at the factory supporting somewhere, someone and that's how he got to manage us. Um, so I think the first time I met him was at that gig that he put on, put us on. What was he like? He he was funny. Uh, he was funny in the way that we thought he was uh, very posh. And, you know, because we were just a bunch of kids and we thought, who's this posh guy off the TV? Um, he was funny because, you know, you, you had him in your home. You'd come, come home from school or work and watch Granada reports with your mum and dad and... Tony would be there and then all of a sudden he was in your life managing your band so it was quite a, a, a unique experience really. It was unique for me because he was three things all the time, he was your friend, he's your record company boss and he was just Tony the, the great sort of um, TV personality thing. Was he a genius? He was a great teacher he taught, you know, he never stopped trying to educate you tell you new things you know if you were here now if you came to Jodrell Bank he'd know the history of this place he'd know when that telescope was built what it's used for and he'd just tell you all this information and we just got that constantly off him the best time I think was the first time we went to New York in 1980 he'd he'd been there the year before and the year before that and he just knew everything inside out we used to call him the scout master <laughs> but for for a 19 20 18 19 20 year old bunch of lads he was the best sort of father figure and teacher you could have really what was your deal with factory like what was the deal? I can tell you what the deal wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't about making any money. That was the deal. <laughs> no, not, not in any bad sense. The thing about those guys then was they were just maverick. They just went ahead and just did things. They didn't care how, when and where, what the sleeve cost, what the whatever cost. It was none of that kind of thing. We never signed a piece of paper with them. 
You know, we had no deal like that. It was just it was a a fifty fifty deal based on good merit. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the deal was Tony's passion, really. Yeah. And uh, we went with all that as well. So this isn't me slagging it off at the end of anything. This is just me reviewing it as an older person now, having the experience that I have. Like, now we're on mute, and I always say, I wish uh, Factory went to the same classes as Mute and took the financial part of it. You know, it, it was the same thing. How did you make any money? We, we, we're really lucky, actually. We own all our own, own old back catalogue that was on Factory um, because when we left in 1986, they owed us a bit of money. No, and, they owed us a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we just said, right, we'll have our masters then. And those masters have been really useful to us in the way that we've licensed them to lots of record labels and now mute... Um, uh, it's licensed to mute. They they sell our back catalogue, so we we made money after, after the event. But we were on a, a wage with Factory, um, and I think Hooky says this in his book, and he what he says isn't true. We were on forty pound a week on Factory for a number of years, and forty pound was the limit you could earn before you started paying income tax. So Tony cleverly put us on £40 a week so we wouldn't have to pay tax on our earnings. And £40 a week in those days was quite a lot of money. Uh, well, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to live in Hume. It was enough not, to survive on. Live in Hume and not pay any rent. So <laughs> um, I didn't. I lived in Withenshaw and paid rent. So. so for a number of years, we, we, we got paid 40 quid, quid a, a week. Uh, Hooky in his book said that he didn't think it was fair that we got the same amount of money as them because they sold more records. Well, in those days, a certain ratio used to sell a good amount of albums. Our first few albums sold quite well. And then all the money we got from gigs went into that pot and that pot just paid as a wage. So, yeah, it was quite a good system, really. Which of the other factory bands did you play with most and who did you enjoy playing with most? Uh, for me, it was always Blurt, Vinnie Riley. Um, Section 25 and Joy Division. Those are the ones we've probably played with the most. I uh, That's kind of a goosebumps moment for me, you know, sharing a stage with, with guys that shared a stage with Joy Division really is, it, it, you know, you're in a very small minority. Well, the smallest minority is we're the only band ever that shared a rehearsal room with them also <laughs> in Salford. What was that like? It was a nightmare because Hooker used to just mess about doing mad things. Hooky would um, take the electricity supply out, find a ho- an old goat's head, put it on Jez's amp, put it inside the mouth, and you'd have to walk around trying to f- find where everything was. You touch this head and obviously jump out of your skin. Um, so Hooky was always playing little tricks on us like that all the time. It's but, amazing yeah. how time changes stories. The actual story was... <laughs> Right, um, <laughs> so you had my memory, now you've got, now you've got Martin's memory. Okay, Let's see so, what this is. Uh, we shared a rehearsal room with them and then they sort of, uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart came out and they got a bit too big for their boots, so they said, we don't want to share a rehearsal room with a certain ratio anymore. We want our own place. So they moved into their own place and as a parting gesture, there was a butcher's downstairs around the corner 
Hooky went and bought a pig's head, not a goat's head, a pig's head from there and played a trick on us by taking the fuse out of the fuse box, putting it in the pig's mouth, putting the pig's mouth open and hid it in the corner so that we'd have to go in the rehearsal room and scratch about to try and find So that the was fuse. all the things I just said that was repeated in a different way. So you see no, see what I have to deal you, with. You were saying it like it happened almost every week. No, yeah. right, okay, and, all right. And you happened to change the pig into a goat. Okay, I'm sorry. Time has waned the, some of the memory cells. It's a miracle so. that you're still together, you guys. <laughs> um, what was Ian like? Ian, I never got to know Ian really closely. I got to know Ian's wife more than I got to know Ian because just you know, how you make friends and you're in and around thing. The last, the very last thing I remember about Ian was we were about to go to, Martin might change this story as well, by the way. Um, we were about to go to Europe and they'd come from Europe. And like all bands do, you're asking about where to go, what to do, where the places to visit. And I remember talking to Ian. That was This is the last conversation I ever had with him. I remember talking to him about where to go, uh, what to do, and he gave me a map and he gave me a very detailed instructions about, you know, what to do in certain places. And that was kind of the last time I ever saw him. And then after that, for, for a long period when we had this room and stuff, it used to uh, kind of freak me out because I, I, I'm not one of those that can deal with death very easily. You know what I mean? I still... Uh, anyway, my reoccurrence was, this is just a joke. Ian's going to come through that door at any minute now. And, and, you know, and that kind of lived me for a long time. So that's why I remember that event so vividly. Martin, yeah, uh, he's, 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 he, 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 the whole band, Ian uh, included, Ian was a really funny guy, actually. He was a really nice guy. He's sort of... Um, I don't, there's an interview, a recorded interview with him, on um, about on the internet and he's asked what's your favourite band and he says a certain ratio which is really nice um, so yeah I mean he was he was he was a nice guy um, so uh, let's uh, get back to the um, ACR story uh, it all started to really ramp up at the end of the 70s what do you remember about supporting Talking Heads on tour that they were really nice people um they when uh, we got that gig because human league wanted to use um reel to reel tape they wanted to come on press the tape and then do you know do the performance but i don't think people were into that at that time yeah um so he'll change this again <laughs> basically it was a, it was something around the tape that they didn't want right for the rest of martin's explanation and anyway so we then um, ended up having that gig. And when we got the gig, the first thing they said to us was, you can have any, anything you want, you can have any lights you want. All the lights were the same colour, by the way. <laughs> so it was like a little joke. They were very... Um, they were sort of very caring about having us and making sure that we were treated really well. They didn't... There wasn't, you know, it wasn't the pop star thing, you know, you can only have that much space, blah, blah. It, there was none of that. We could have anything and do anything that we kind of wanted. And it was nice watching them at the side of the stage as well for long periods, watching us and kind of studying what these aliens are, are kind of doing. What are they doing? They're mashing up funk with punk. Hmm. It's a bit weird. 
Yeah, it was a, it was a great experience, really, because from playing like dingy clubs, we all of a sudden were playing places like the Free Trade Hall and and venues like that with a really professional band. Who you know, we we'd never seen professionalism like that before. Um, and they did take us under their wing, and they also taught us how to tune our guitars, because um, I think their sound engineer said after the first gig, he said they sound like a fire in a pet shop. <laughs> so um, I, I think Tina, Tina, Tina Weymouth, on yeah. the second gig, she said, "Cold jazz over. over here, guys. <laughs> right. See this thing here. It, in, by the way, in those days, a tuner was, was massive." It was big, like a big, like a big was, oscilloscope. It was like a strobe thing. Yeah. She said, this is called a tuner. <laughs> We're going to lend you our tuner for the rest of the tour, and this is how you tune your guitar up. So I think in the end she gave in and said, no, it's all right, I'll tune your guitars <laughs> for you. And from that part from that part in our career, for the rest of our lives, we've always been in tune. Yeah. So we're no Thanks longer. Tina. So if any of you like our material before that, it's Tina Weymouth's fault for tidying us up. Yeah. Uh, they added a, a, a funk dimension to their sound on the back of that tour. So um, I think it's fair to say that you, you made a massive impact on the sound of Talking Heads. I'm not sure about that, but David Byrne was very, very. He, he, he really liked the band and he for every single gig we did with them he spent the whole set at the side of the stage usually when you go on tour with the band what you'll do is you'll watch them for a couple of gigs and you'll really enjoy them but then you'll have a little break from them because it gets too much watching the same set every night over and over but he stuck to it and he you know when you see the main band at the side of the stage because the audience can see that the audience can see David Burns stood there it gives you a lot of confidence and it also says that you know as as a as a gig the support band and the and the main act are a unit you know it's the the gig is the whole thing so it was great getting that support really um and it was the funk in particular you've modestly batted that back but they definitely became a more funky sounding band after that tour yeah, I think they were listening to some of the things we were listening to as well at that time, you know, like um, Parliament and Brides of Funkenstein, that kind of thing. And they, uh, kind of the thing that maybe would have worked for them, and this is me guessing, because they were in New York and there's sets of musicians that everybody else knows, maybe that's how things kind of came together. So, so if you wanted someone like Bernie Worrell, you know, he was, oh, yeah, he lives on 8th and 7th, and, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I'll go ask him, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think we sort of helped them. Uh, maybe that maybe a direction they were already sort of, um, you know, experimenting with. We maybe helped them push them a little bit more, more that way. What about your own sound? Um, it, it it was and always it always has been an unusual mix of genres. Um, is that a conscious thing with you? Yeah. Uh, it, you know, if you think about the festivals that we, we're playing, um, we're obviously doing Blue Dot. We did Latitude on uh, Friday. Um, we did, we've did. we done the two uh, Giles Peterson's We Out Here festivals, which is, which is a jazz festival. We're playing Womad Festival. 
next week, which is a world music festival. We did a festival last year. What was the one in London called? With uh, bands like Black Midi, and it was basically an indie festival. And in a couple of months' time, we're playing in Belgium at a punk goth festival. So you've got jazz, you've got world music, you've got punk, you've got indie. So you know, it's 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 hard to categorise us, and and I'm really proud of the fact that we can fit into all those different genres. He missed off the reggae one. <laughs> yeah, reggae festival, um, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, There are a lot of diehard ACR fans here. Um, but for those that don't know, how many instruments do you actually play, Martin? Um, I'm the Roy Castle of the band. I play <laughs> the trumpet, guitar, drums and bass, and percussion, of course. Everyone in the band plays percussion. We never cite that as a instrument but in the studio as well we all play keyboards as well so uh like synths and stuff so um donald's not far off yeah i play guitar in the studio not live because we haven't got really good guitarists so i have to make up for it yeah Uh, i have to repair (laughs) the drums drums. (laughs) funny enough talking about that when we're actually in the studio a lot of people think i'm in control of the drum space and that whole thing it's actually completely the opposite. I leave that to, to him. He's, the, he's my trusted person behind the glass. And he's a real um, taskmaster as well. He won't let me get away with anything. So, And then vice versa, when he's got the guitar thing, he's, I'll listen to that. And you were asking, it's, it's amazing why we stay together. It's things like that in our band that are different from other bands. Um, we talked about Manchester in the mid-70s when you were starting out. Um, you got famous in the early 80s. Tell me about Manchester then in terms of Manchester itself and the music scene that you were a part of sort of 10 years on. So what year are we talking about, Chris? Let's say 85, so 10 years uh, after the the start of the band. 85 was a funny year, really, because it was in the middle of nowhere. You know, 1980, 81, 82 were really exciting years with the whole post-punk thing happening. And then we had Acid House from 87, so 85 was like, it's like being, it's like having your 45th birthday or your 55th birthday. It's like, it's in the middle of nowhere, you know, it's not one to celebrate. Uh, in fact, 55 is worse than being, you know, it's not as exciting as being 52 or 53. But um, yeah, I'd say 85 wasn't, mind you, we did a really good album round then, didn't we, Force? Force, yes. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was it was a good time for us, and we went to Japan. We were touring First Europe time, yeah. quite a lot, going to America. We actually went to America with New Order in '85, and that was quite an eye opener because we played quite big, like hangars and stuff like that. Um, and Martin nearly started a world war. In um, yes, he he decided one day that um, <laughs> he'd wind the Americans up in uh, where was it New York. Yeah, yeah, Madison Square, Madison Garden. Square Gardens, and he um, he shouted something that he didn't like, uh, which was all the crew and everything else. So you can imagine we're all running and hiding <laughs> because this crew did not like what Martin. It was said. in the middle of the Cold War, and I said America, Russia, 
which I wouldn't say that now, but like you just it said was, it, yeah. it was quite it was quite funny at the time. Yeah, and the the, uh, the road crew came backstage and said, "You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that. You're going to get killed." And anyway, we we weren't bothered because we were were going on to the next gig that night. So back back in Manchester, I, I, I guess you're playing the Hacienda pretty regularly. Yeah, because we got in for nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story about playing the Hacienda one night. I think it was a period where we'd sort of left Factory and I was actually signing on at the time. And uh, we played the Hacienda and um, at the front of the stage, there was the guy who I used to sign on with uh, waving at me like this. And I thought, shit, because it was my signing on day the next morning. Um, so I went to the signing on office in Didsbury and uh, he was sat behind the desk and I, I walked up to him and he went, hi, great gig last night. So, so thanks. He said, have you done any work paid or unpaid in the last two weeks? I said, no. And he said, sign there, please. Thank you. Um, the Hacienda is one of the most famous clubs in the world. It, it, was it one of the best or the worst? It was one of the worst as far as sound goes. And the toilets. Yeah. So, I mean, we saw some brilliant bands there, didn't we? Like, in the early days, before yeah. Acid House took off. I mean, the Acid House thing was brilliant. But before that, we saw bands like Trouble Funk. Yeah. Um, Remember seeing Frankie Goes for Hollywood? First time riding on the bike? Um, there was quite a lot of American acts that came yeah. over, Madonna included, um, but hip hop acts as well. So it, it was it was great, but the, the sound was terrible. And we we used to go over to America quite a lot and go to clubs like the Danceteria, where the sound was amazing, Excellent, the yeah. lights were amazing, and every, every venue you went into in America and Europe was streets ahead of the UK venues. So. In a way, the Hacienda was copying that and they got everything right. But what they couldn't get right was the fact that it was a big cavernous warehouse. So that was designed to keep boats in and not performances, yeah. you know. But, but it, it was, was great. good space. It was, it was great being an honorary member and just walking in there with your card. We used to teach, uh, treat it as our local pub because we lived in Hume. So we'd just go there for a drink. If, I, it, if it was cold, and there was only like 20 people in there. He'd be sat upstairs on the balcony and the bouncers would come along and say, we're really sorry, we're going to have to ask you to leave. There's not enough people in and we're going to close. So they used to open it, but then close it because there weren't enough people in there. One of my favourite gigs there was watching the Smiths, the early Smiths. There used to be, you had the stage like this and then the DJ booth was down there, which was lower. And it had a small kind of oblong glass thing that used to be able to look onto the stage. I remember watching Mike Joyce, like where that gentleman is there from here, just watching Mike through this little thing and, and Johnny Marr with such small hands making really big chords and thinking, wow, these guys are good. You know, so you used to be able to have that with all kinds of different bands as well because it, it was uh, Claude Bessie was the... the um, was he the videographer? Video. Yeah, he's the video girl guy. And I was getting into video and stuff, so I used to hang out with Claude and uh, Malcolm as well, who uh, Malcolm used to... Mal Malcolm? Garrett. I don't know. Was that right? Malcolm Garrett, you're saying? Yeah. 
Anyway, I used to hang about in that booth all the time, and that's where I saw all these great bands. Um, yeah, your, that gig you're talking about, your brother, Derek, yes. played with 52nd Street. Correct. And I did the sound for them. I'd never done the sound in my life, but I, I was really interested in doing the sound. And I told them, I said, I'll do the sound for you for that gig. And they said, have you ever done it before? I went, yeah, of course, I've done it loads of times. And I, I did it and really enjoyed it. The yeah. perception is that, I, I think, for, for most of us, that you were all, the Manchester bands, that you all hung out together and, and there was a lot of hanging out at the Hacienda. Is that right? And if so, who, who were your mates? Who are my mates? In, in, in bands, who were you hanging around with at that time, at least, in the mid to late 80s now? Um, we used to, more from the rehearsal room prospect in the boardwalk, that we used to see a lot of people that we knew and would be doing gigs with, you know, like um, the Jazz Defectors, uh, Happy Mondays, Oz, even Mick Hucknall used to rehearse there. Um, it was just one of those... You, you would just see people out. It wouldn't be... I used to hang out a lot with Bernard, Bernard Sumner. That's who I used to go out with all the time because me and Bernard were into getting into production, producing bands and all that kind of thing. So we used to go out a lot and listen to records very studiously, like hearing Shannon for the first time going, Bernard, have you heard that bass drum? Yeah, I think it's got a, a you know, <laughs> that's what we used to be like. But Bernard Bolacanzi is still very much like that, very yeah. studious about making Absolutely, music. and that's why probably me and him really got on in the early days. of. Do- we still get on, sorry, but, you know, our early production thing, that we used to just go hang out, have a good time, listen to great records, try and recreate them with the other artists that we were working with. Uh, Marty, do you think um, you, so but by the mid-80s, say, um, late-80s, um, there was a lot of love for the band. Were, were you were you getting recognised? And, and we, do you think you were enjoying the success? Um, That's a no. We've never been successful. <laughs> have we? <laughs> I don't know. There's an audience there, which means that we must have yeah, some form it, of it's success. It's raining outside. Ah, that's it. Right. I, uh, Got it. I was, Got it. Got it. You did. Yeah. You're, you're cited as one of the most influential old bands in, in a generation. I mean, you, you must be aware of that. Yeah, we, we you know, going back to the Hacienda days, we were a real band's band. Yeah. And whenever we played a gig, yep. every band in Manchester, no be matter how front. famous, yep. they'd always be at the gig. Yep. And we used to seem to, wherever we played, we'd always get... <coughs> a good, excuse me, good example is the Stone Roses before yep. they were famous. Um, they'll, they'll talk about always supporting a certain ratio and being at the front of the stage when we played. Um, and they used to call us Dark Funk and Manny to this day. Every, yeah, every, every time, every time you see him, he says, oh, fuck, how's the Dark Funk going, man? You guys. Is... So, um, yeah, we were, we were a real band's band, but that doesn't bring you success. Bands don't buy your records as much as punters do. So, yeah. That said, fast forward to now, you know, here you are playing massive festivals. Uh, what, 40 years since you started out? 40, 40, 40, we celebrate our 40th anniversary of our first release in... Uh, oh, shit. Right, you've got yourself into this cul de sac. You can Nine, drive out. 2019. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's 43 years. So now. that's some incredible achievement, isn't it? Would you have expected to all have still been together? No, I would have thought if you had have said to me when I was 19 that 
your your bundle will still be going when you're um, – I'm not going to say how old. I would have just thought, well, what, what does someone want to watch an old band like that for? Because so, it's still relevant, because it's still making relevant music today. It's not your age, it's what you do with the instrument you've yeah, got. Yeah, but when you're 19, yeah. it's... Uh, it well, I think when you're 19, you, have, you don't have a care in the world. We've now no. got mortgages and But you don't want to go and watch a b- bunch of 60-odd-year-olds, do you? Yeah. Go and watch the Stones. I wouldn't watch you. <laughs> you've made... I you think, have to, you're in the same band. <laughs> you've made an indelible mark, I think, on the music scene. Do you ever think about that? Uh, no, not really, because it's it's transient in the sense that you know someone else will come along and people will be talking about them in um, in great terms. What I'm proud of is what we've done and the stability of what we've done and being relevant and still pushing things. You know, still pushing our own envelope, not joining in with everybody else's conversation, but kind of having our own and dipping into different things. Yeah, what, what I'm proud of is is the last record we made and the, the new records that we're making at the moment and the newest stuff that we, 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 we're doing. And the fact that we, even though we've got all that history, we're still looking into the future and we're still making music that, that that's really stands up now and and can still influence people that's totally different from the music that we played back then so i'm i'm really proud of the fact that we just adapt and change all the time uh we're not very good at at style so we don't adapt and change like david bowie does with his uh image but we do that very strongly with our music you know um, I love it when, as a fan of yours, I love uh, young bands citing you as an influence. Do you spot that? We hear it from time to time, and we read it from time to time, and we're in lots of different people's books. You know, people send me things about, you know, people talking about us in their books, from, you know, um, the Beastie Boys to, I don't know, Morrissey or something, you know. Um, Chris, we don't really think about it as as it's nice looking back at it and go oh great it's relevant but it's it's not it really isn't a thing uh, and i'm not dissing you on that i'm just saying we don't live our life like that we're, we're on to the next thing yeah you know and that's what we're all about we're we're, we're right now sat in front of you we've recorded a lot of things ready for uh the release of an album but a crazy thing is we're already recording for the album before you hear this next one so L- Loco was the last release, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. Yeah, but we did. We also last year we did three EPs with four tracks on each EP, which uh, we, that's what we wanted to do instead of doing another album, because EPs have always been a strong part of our life, and um, it's EPs are great because they're not an album, they're not a single. That sort of in between things really good, and we're really proud of those four EPs. In, three EPs. In fact, on Six Music, we had 92 spot plays last year, which is which is a lot of a, a lot of play, and that was from the EPs, you know. So, um, and those EPs would have made a great album. But going back to the point about uh, pe- influencing people, like people will play tracks to me uh, that's uh, like um, the Orioles and say, right, 
this they've said that this tune's re- really influenced by ACR, and I listen to it, and I think I can't hear any ACR in there. <laughs> so it's really hard to spot someone the way people and we do it. What we do is we'll we'll take an influence off someone, and we think we're copying it, but it'll twist and come out the other end totally, totally different. And I think most artists do that anyway. I was uh, inter- interviewing Jackknife Lee on Six Music, and he, he mentioned you guys. And one thing led to another, and, and you ended up working together, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So Through you. He, did, <laughs> he played, you had a mix, a, a mix of Jackknife Lee's on your show. Yeah, I invited him to. And me. I heard him playing Lucinda, and I thought, I, and, but I heard the tunes running up to Lucinda, and I thought, wow, this guy's good. Every tune's is a killer. And then ACR appeared in it, and I thought, wow, that's great. So I looked him up online and got in touch with him. I said, thanks for playing our tune. And I said, do you, do you want to do some work with us? And he said, yeah. He was, turned out to be a massive ACR fan. And he did a, a remix for us. And then we exchanged the favour. And we did. We were his house band yep. for a recording that yep. he's, he's done. So one of that the, all came about because of you, uh, Chris. One of, one of the biggest producers in the world. I would say. Yeah. Uh, Guys, um, are you okay to take some questions? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, Any questions for the guys? Yeah, one here. Just shout loud. Oh, we've got a mic. So tell us who you are, okay? Who was it? Let's get your name and your question. Thank you, buddy. Hi, my name's Graham. And as you can hear, I'm not from up north. I'm from down south. And the question I want to ask really is about, going back to Tony Wilson, was that, Really, from being near London, you, we didn't know the North existed until this television programme came on called So It Goes. And um, I've got really fond memories of that that show. Did you ever appear on it? And, uh, or did you ever go along to the recordings? Because it was... I'd love to see, you know, old video of it as well. We well, wasn't on So It Goes, but it was on... What was the other programme we were Celebration. on? Celebration. Celebration that yeah. Tony did. He did another um, kind of... Like a Melbourne, it was like an arts program. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. we we did three tracks on there, and who else was on that that show? Where you were on? Uh, Joy Division might have been on it. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, we didn't like you. I used to love that. That was the first place I ever saw Debbie Harry. So it goes. Basically, whoever was playing the, the the Russell Club, the Factory, that Friday night would get on. So it goes, and then any band that came to Manchester, like. Blondie, like you said, uh, Iggy Pop, whoever was in town, Tony would always get hold of them and say, please come and do my show. So he had just had some amazing acts on that, on that programme. And as well, Graham, we didn't know the South existed at all until... Yeah, uh, it, we it went... kind of stops at the North Circular. We would go down to there. That was it. Well, what for Gap? What Sorry. For Gap, what for Gap? Was, Sorry, yeah, yeah. 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 wasn't that far south. <laughs> Another question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Hi, uh, my name is Jeff. Um, any bands or artists that you've worked with or come into contact through your career that you can't believe they've never been recognised or been successful? Yeah, one for me, World of Twist. I produced a, a couple of tracks on their album, and Gordon King's just got a book out now, actually, about, about World of Twist, which is really good and worth looking at. But. Um, Tony Ogden and Gordon King were just amazing songwriters and they had this uh, 
the 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 whole idea that the the way they thought pop music and their presentation and they used to build stage sets they had amazing songs their ideas about playing live were brilliant uh, i can't believe that they never made it and they're one of liam gallagher's favorite bands as well if that means anything but yeah i'd go with that cause it's that easy uh, any relationship with oasis with with Noel and liam uh, yes, I, um, not in a very close sense, but I knew him kind of in the early days when they were being rebels. I used to see some amazing fights. So I'm no, seriously, proper John Wayne come through the door, big issue things going on with them back in the day. Cause I used to work with a lot of all different bands and they were part of things as well. I remember being in a TV studio once and it kicked off with them too. And it was carnage everywhere and after that they went on and performed like nothing happened <laughs> well we we had the same managers in spiral carpets for a while didn't we and yeah. anthony boggiano yeah, and yeah. noel used to be the in spirals uh roadie yeah so we used to come in contact with him he used to then. give me all my uh merch for my young niece little mugs and all that kind of thing so i knew him back in those kind of days and probably the last time I ever talked to him I remember him saying I've got my band I've got my band and I'm going oh great great he, he was actually <laughs> a, a DJ at Glastonbury this year on the on, on the, in the un, unfair ground and um, you know you always get the liggers behind you dancing away while you're doing your set and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd been focusing on my set because it was quite a packed audience and you know, keeping them dancing, keeping them moving. And about after an hour, I looked behind me to see who the liggers were. And there was Noel Gallagher dancing behind me. So <laughs> what is that's it the that, last time he, I he saw He likes dance music, Marty. Johnny Marr who says that the worst thing about playing hometown shows in Manchester is that I can guess this. Yeah. <laughs> More niggas in Manchester than anywhere Which else. Which is why when I went to go and see Tim from the showers, I went to Leeds because <laughs> I knew I wouldn't be able to get anything. Here. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm, I, I'm the one that has to sort out our guest list. And um, yeah, nightmare. <laughs> uh, my wife said to me this morning when I woke up, she said, can you get someone on the guest list for me? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Do you know, the worst thing, it's it's all right the day before the gig, but on the gig day, you yeah. do not want anyone saying, can you get us on the guest list? It's amazing how many of my relations kind of remember me on just on that occasion. I remember that the, the Stone Roses comeback gig at Heaton Park, the Golden Circle was bigger than the whole of the rest of the crowd. <laughs> and Easy everyone done. claimed to be related yeah, to one yeah, of the, the band done. members. Yeah. Um, one more question. This is time for one more. Anyone else? One more question. All right. No. Uh, yes, sir. Hi, guys. Um, my name's James. Uh, I hope this isn't too painful for you, but last time we were at Blue Dot, we saw a wonderful performance by Denise Johnson doing a solo solo work. I wonder if you could... I wonder if you could share any memories, your favourite memories of her, because she's obviously very sadly missed. We've got, got a million got memories. Yeah, we've got millions of memories of Denise. Denise is kind of... Um, we are talking about this the other day because at, at the moment we've got Jez who's injured and Jez can't perform with us, as we've, we've told you, etc. And we, we were rehearsing Tuesday, last Tuesday, and we're trying to get this, this vibe going and everything. And we just couldn't find it. Or we couldn't find what was there. And then it was Matt that reminded us all that that's what Denise used to do inside it, you know, because we're still living it as if it's kind of there. Um, and that's what we're missing. 
she was a massive part of, of kind of what we do. She was super funny. She was very, um, very eclectic in her own way. I don't think we ever saw the the max of her talent. She was always kind of in uh, second or third gear because she she didn't like showing off. You know, she was one of those that she had it and she just didn't like showing off. We were saying coming down, down here before, t- t- talking about... Um, rehearsing and vocals and things like that you'd rehearse with Denise and it'd be in the rehearsal room it'd be you know quiet and then you get to the gig and my god when you used to hear that beautiful you know what we all hear I only heard it then (laughs) I didn't I heard just a tiny little bit of it at rehearsals but it was being clever and being able to save what you've got until then it was all those kind of little things she did she inspired us as well in, in lots of like different ways my yeah, I mean, uh, w- one of the things that I, th- I thought um, a couple of weeks ago with Jez being ill um, and he, he had to spend five weeks in hospital and I don't know if anyone here has ever spent five weeks in the hospital, but the, your mental health can suffer from it. And uh, th- there's actually a condition, it's, it's got a name about being in the hospital for too long and what it does to your head. And, you know, as well as Jez suffering physically, he wasn't in a good state. He wanted to get out of that place. And I just, I thought, I wish Denise was here because she would have really helped him in that situation. So, yeah, she's very special. We still talk about, we're never going to ever forget her because she was a long time, you know, cohort of ours and we, we, we're always talking about it with relevance. Even now when we're making music and we're doing things, we say, oh, Dee would have done that or, you know, she would have been there doing that. So it, so it isn't painful at all. It's painful not having her like the rest of you guys, not, not having her here. But talking about it, no, because she still and will always be um, a massive influence. So even things you're going to hear in the next few years, it's still got that thread of Dee somewhere in there. A tribute to Denise seems like a fitting way to finish. Guys, thank you so, so much. Martin, Don, a certain ratio. You've been listening to the Blue Dot podcast, looking back at highlights of Blue Dot 2022. Blue Dot returns to Jodrell Bank from the 20th to the 23rd of July 2023 with early bird weekend tickets on sale now at discovertheblue.com. Blue Dot.com.